is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Welcome to a new episode. It's September 6th, day after Labor Day. We're coming in on a Tuesday instead of our usual Monday because of the holiday. And I decided in this episode, because of the last week's Vinnie Gorgeous story that occurred God, so many years ago, to try to plumb the depths of my memory and go back to some of the old stuff that I've had over the years that I probably would have forgotten for the most part. But when I dig into it and actually spend the time to look at all the details from these cases, with the decades that have passed, there's a lot more information that's come out that I would have ignored if not for this podcast. And it's in, in the story that I'm going to tell today, one of them at least, really is shocking, um, the stuff that I learned recently. So I'm going to talk about a couple of old cases that really delve into how I used to handle cases back then before they put me in jail for doing uh, such a thing. But this is what I did, and this is how I really made my bones as a, a young defense lawyer. And um, I used the skills that I had learned and in a lot of ways created. I don't know anybody else who was doing this back then, and I'll explain, uh, to help me in the first Gotti trial. And that was largely the reason why we won uh, that first uh, Gotti trial where he got the acquittals and the hung jury and no convictions was because of some of the uh, the investigatory techniques that I used that, again, no one else was doing, and I'll get into it. Also, we're going to talk about the uh, the Joe Biden speech the other night in, uh, in Philadelphia at Independence Hall that was just so utterly bonkers, so just insane with the blood red background and he's shaking his fists like Hitler. It made me realize how different he is than Obama was, even though they were part of the same administration. A lot of people compared them, say that the Joe Biden term, this term is uh, the third uh, term of President Obama, and it's just not true. Whatever anybody ever thought of Obama, no one ever thought that he was stupid. You, you'll never hear anybody ever including me. And I hated Obama and still do today because he was the reason why I left the Democratic Party because I saw him for what he was, a far left, Jew-hating, America-hating, new kind of Democrat that really dragged the party so far left. And I saw it early and you know, I was out of there because I, I, I could see. I mean, but I never thought that he was dumb. Some of the foreign policy decisions that he made that were clearly designed to help radical Islam and hurt our allies in the region. I never thought it was because he was dumb. I thought it was because he was evil. No one thinks that Joe Biden is smart, really. And the mistakes that he makes, that he makes, and the one that he made the other night with that speech, you know, first you can blame it on his old age and his, you know, clear, you know, onset of dementia, and he's not the same guy that he was, let's say, in the 80s when he was at his sharpest. But the fact is, he wasn't smart back then either. And I, and I liked him when I was a, a Democrat back then in the 80s. What did I know? I was an idiot. Um, this was a guy that had presidential aspirations, election after election. He never got anywhere with it one time because he got caught plagiarizing. I mean, the guy's not smart. He didn't do well in school. He's not. No one's ever accused him of being particularly smart. He's been wrong about every foreign policy decision that he's ever made. And now to go and do this speech, and it came off so badly and had to shock whatever, however many uh, moderates are left in the country or people that are independent, I suppose. I just couldn't imagine that it could help the Democratic Party. And it was so such a tin ear type of speech where nobody noticed. 
you know, that it wasn't going to fly. And of course, the next day he had to backtrack like a maniac because it can't, it went over so badly. But that's what Joe Biden is. He's not the third term of Barack Obama. He's just, you know, a vessel, an empty vessel who on his best days in the 80s was a dummy. So we're going to get into that as well. But what I want to start with is a, a case that occurred in the early Early in 2000, it was a stock fraud and money laundering case uh, that was charged in federal court in Brooklyn. And this was a 19 defendant case. I was not even 10 years out of law school. I was a very young lawyer. This was one of the first cases I ever took on my own where I wasn't working for Jerry Shargell. It was a 19 defendant case and it had six alleged members and associates of, of organized crime that were charged. And it focused on a Manhattan brokerage house that had committed like $40 million of stock fraud and then laundered the illicit proceeds out of the country. And this all occurred between 1993 and 1996. And the case, as I said, wasn't charged until the beginning of 2000. And the scheme was pretty simple. The brokerage house secretly purchased stock in these garbage companies under the names of nominees. They would have people that were not associated with the brokerage house that bought the stock for them. And then the brokerage house had their brokers sell this crappy stock to unwitting investors. And the way they got the stock price to go up is they lied about good things that were happening for the company to induce people to buy. The more they bought, the more the stock went up. And they were, of course, selling it. They were the ones that were selling it to these unwitting investors, and they made zillions of dollars in profits. Now, naturally, and typical of the government, they first arrested the leaders of the fraud scheme in September of 1998. So it was like a year and a half earlier, and then got them to flip and cooperate against their co-conspirators who were below them on the food chain, which I find to be ridiculous. Why would you let the top guys flip against all the schnooks below. But that's what they did. And once they arrested a few of these leaders, they, of course, decided to cooperate and they were released on bail, you know, mistake number two. But this was a different U.S. attorney's office than perhaps what's in place now. So these sort of things were commonplace back then. But what makes the case even more interesting now than it was back then, and it was interesting back then, was that one of the cooperators was a fellow named Felix Sater. Does that name ring a bell? He later uh, became famous after it was revealed in 2017 that he had emailed President Trump's uh, former attorney, Michael Cohn, in 2015, and he argued that a Trump Tower in Moscow could help Trump win the 2016 election. And this is what he wrote in an email to Michael Cohn, that idiot. He wrote, I will get Putin on this program and we will get Donald elected, Sater wrote. Our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this and I will manage the process. And this dude wasn't joking because he had some serious connections. If you can believe, he provided the government pre-9-11 uh, pre with five telephone numbers of Osama bin Laden. That is no joke. That's how tied in Felix Sater was. Anyway. Sater, along with his partners in these in this brokerage house, instantly flipped for the government, as I said, when they were arrested in 1998. And one of his co-conspirators, who also cooperated, was a fellow named Gennady Klotzman, also known as Gene Klotzman, and he was another Russian like Felix Sater. 
My client was a Russian named Daniel Lev, and he was charged in the indictment with RICO, racketeering, amongst other charges. And his role was alleged to be one of the nominees who the principals of the brokerage house secretly bought the stock in his name, which they later sold, as I said, to their own customers without divulging that ownership interest. Lev claimed that he bought the stock on his own and had nothing to do with any of the manipulation or fraud. And what would be the evidence that he was a nominee for the fraudsters and not a legitimate buyer of the stock? Well, that's easy. The government's cooperating witnesses. Daniel was a young kid. I think he probably was in maybe like his mid to late 20s then. He was younger than me. I was only in 2000. I was 34, I suppose, when, when I got this case. He just seemed like an older soul. He was a very serious dude. He was not, not like a young kid. And I'm not sure exactly how he came about hiring me, but it was probably a referral from one of the many Russians that I had represented in my short career at that point. And I, and I worked hard on those cases. So I'm sure that one of the Russians probably recommended me. I had just left Jerry Shargell's office, as I had said, where I had learned most of what I needed in order to, in order to properly defend a federal criminal case. And one of the reasons I really knew that it was time to leave Jerry was that I had become so adept at destroying the credibility of cooperating witnesses by subpoenaing their entire lives, their, all their finances, and I'd ferry out all the fraud they were involved in. And by using like really other, and I'd have to say they were ingenious methods to destroy credibility of these cooperators. I don't know if they were ingenious, like they were so brilliant, or they were just so ballsy that nobody else would do it. Either way, sometimes genius can be found in, in a big pair of balls, I suppose. It was easier to do this kind of stuff back then as the courts, the, the judges were more willing to sign federal subpoenas for defense lawyers. And man, I really took advantage of it. For about a 10-year period, I suppose, probably late 1990s to 2010 or so, I was really pushing the envelope on creating impeachment material on government witnesses. And I got in trouble with some judges because they didn't think it was legal during one trial I had in 2008, but I, sh I was ready for it. I had a case that I showed the judge and he begrudgingly accepted what I did. I mean, there was crazy stuff that I was doing, visiting cooperators in prison, getting them to sign things. I just didn't care. I, all I was concerned about was destroying the credibility of the witnesses. And I figured, why not do things that people weren't doing? That way, the government wouldn't expect it. The witnesses wouldn't expect it. Why not? Now, normally, the government provides the impeachment material to the defense lawyers on the cases. One of the things is like the cooperation agreement, which will contain the benefits that the cooperator receives from the government in exchange for helping them. Um, they also turn over FBI reports of all their debriefings with the cooperators. And in those uh, debriefings, it'll contain all the prior bad acts that the cooperator had and all the criminality in the case uh, that they're actually testifying in. And traditionally, defense lawyers will take those materials and cross the government witnesses on them alone, showing the jury that they're bad people or they're liars. But the witnesses are completely prepared for this kind of cross because the government has gone over it all with them. Before the trial, they're prepping these witnesses based on the materials that they're turning over to the defense. So it's not like any of this is a surprise. They're even doing like fake question and answers. They're pretending to be a defense lawyer to get them ready. And lawyers, this is the truth, are inherently lazy. 
They were lazy back when I was a young lawyer, and I think they're even lazier now. And it's pretty much a reflection, I suppose, on society. People think that they're working hard, and they pretend that they're working hard, but they're not. They just want people to think that they're working hard, but they're not. And that's how defense lawyers are. And I was so desperate to win cases back then that I just decided I'm going to create my own impeachment material because otherwise I'm stuck with what they hand me. And I, I never relied on the government to just give it to me. And even if other lawyers did it that way, I didn't care because I didn't want to just be like some average schmo lawyer. I felt, you know, I'm in this profession. And I'll be damned if I'm just going to go through life and be average. It just completely freaked me out at the prospect of it. And I quickly learned that if I could destroy a government's, a government witness's credibility, it oftentimes destroyed the entire case, no matter how many other cooperators they had, because the humiliation of one of their witnesses was enough, from what I could tell, to infect the entire prosecution. Because the jury's like, well, how can I believe the guys with the, you know, the eagles on their shoulders with their badges on when they put this pile of garbage in front of me who got caught in so many lies? How do I know they're all not lying? And as a young lawyer, I never needed to be told what to do by the people I worked for on issues like this. And it's funny because I look back as to what I was back then. I didn't know any better because I didn't really know anybody else. I was so afraid of failure that I couldn't even imagine of not getting this impeachment material done. Having to rely on the government for cross topics was just, it's impossible for me to even imagine back then. And it is even now, I'm not even a question, but that's how 95% of lawyers defend cases by letting the government give them the cross materials and clients don't get it because they don't necessarily know what the government's turned over to the defense lawyer. They think, wow, my lawyer's doing a great job. But in fact, all they're doing is just spewing back what the government gave to the defense lawyers. And as I said, the clients can't tell the difference, but I got really good at it. And just prior to the Daniel Lev case in 2000, the last case I had with Jerry was a 1999 federal death penalty case that I assisted him on. And it was, as I said, it was the last trial I ever did with him. And it was when I knew it was time, you know, that I really needed to be out on my own. I was creating all of this massive impeachment material for lawyers that I worked for and not for my own use. And it was crazy. It was maddening to me to watch it come out in court and for me not being the one to be doing it. I'd watch it and it would just make me cringe like, oh, how much fun is this? And I'm sitting here on the sidelines like, a, like an imbecile. I laugh a little bit about how, you know, having an associate like me back then who would just deliver stuff like this to Jerry. It's so foreign to me now in 2022 to imagine associates doing work like this on their own without being told what to do every step of the way. I purposely didn't involve Jerry in a lot of this stuff because I didn't want him to know in case there was any question down the line that if I had done something wrong, I didn't want to tie him to it. You know, that's just how it was. You know, back then at age 32, 33, I did all of this on my own. And I just delivered it to Jerry and, you know, away we went. The federal death penalty case, I just ran amok 
with the federal witnesses on it. It was a case involving the owner of 60 city gas gas stations that were located in Brooklyn and Queens, if you remember them from back then, if you're from that area. And he was accused of killing a few people who got in the way of his uh, fraud scheme. And he had this, this scheme at the pumps where he would shortchange customers. They would pay for $10 of gas and he could press this lever and they'd only get like $9.50 worth of gas. But multiply that times a zillion customers and 60 gas station, and this guy took a lot of dough. And the main witness for them was a fellow named Marvin Dotson, who worked for our client, and he killed for him as well. Our client's name was Gurmeet Singh Dinza. He was an Indian, Eastern Indian. And after uh, Singh, that's what we called him, got charged and he was being held in the MCC, we learned of an inmate who had befriended Marvin Dotson when they were both in the MCC. Now, obviously, this was in a different part. This was in a, a co cooperator section because they would never have put a cooperator like Marvin Dotson in general population. But this inmate, uh, his name was Chris Reese, had just been released. And I, I don't think he actually was a cooperator. I'm not sure why he was in that area. But he wanted to help us with Dotson is what I was told. He came to our offices and I met him along with our investigator. And as I said, I kept Jerry out of it on purpose. I would give him some very uh, limited information, but I didn't tell him much what was going on. And Chris Reese told us that when he was in the MCC with Marvin Dotson, that Dotson had convinced himself that he was going to get a piece of Singh's gas stations when they got forfeited after a conviction, assuming that there was a conviction. Somehow Dodson had misread a federal statute about whistleblowing, and he was convinced he was going to be making like tens of millions of dollars as a reward, even though he was cooperating and he had killed. So you'd think that getting a lower sentence would have been enough, but no, Marvin Dodson wanted, you know, money, money. So Chris Reese told us that he was willing to work with us and, and take our direction. I did not get involved with any payments to him. And to this day, I have no idea if he even was paid, how he was paid. I didn't know anything, and I was kept out of it as well. I just did my section. It was all compartmentalized. But for the next month or two, Chris Reese came to our offices like every morning and delivered tapes of his conversations with, with Dodson from like the day before. And they were continuing to work on his reward application, as we could hear on these taped conversations, because now Chris Reese was out and he could tape without anybody seeing. What I would do is I would listen to the tapes with Reese every morning, and I would tell him what to say to Dotson that day for the new tapes. You know, I would see things that Dodson was talking about, and I would sort of tell him how to lead him into saying these other things and, you know, ask him about these subjects, because we weren't going to use all of these tapes, but if we could get some nuggets from them, you know, that would be great for cross-examination. This was like unprecedented access to a major cooperator in a federal death penalty case. This was no joke. Reese would also have three-way calls with Marvin and when he would call from prison, which is not allowed, but when you're in prison and you're a cooperator, somehow you manage to get special perks. I'd have Reese tape them all and get him to go into the craziest subjects with whatever women he was talking to. And as I said, this occurred every single day. I'd get a, a tape dropped off by Reese. I'd listen to it with him, and then we'd send them out to do the next tape. We'd transcribe every word of the tape. This is how I work then, and it's how I work now. I had one 
young woman who's not even a lawyer anymore. She was a young lawyer. I think she's in the beauty industry or something. She, I guess this kind of stuff would make her have enough of, of this kind of work. I would give her the tape and I would say her name was Lee. And I would say, go in there and and knock it out. And she would spend all day. And sometimes these transcripts were 30 to 40 pages, but I would have the entire thing transcribed. Why? Because I didn't want to miss a word. And she was great at it. And then what I would do is I'd go through it and find areas that were helpful that we could use for cross pieces. And I'd have those tapes retaped just for those little nuggets and separate them by subject and then start piling up the various subjects. And ultimately, at the end, we would see what we had and what we were willing to use. And it was constantly making it smaller and smaller until we only had the best nuggets to be used against Marvin Dotson. We had no computers to do this kind of stuff for us in 1998. You didn't have any kind of program that allowed you to uh, put all the tapes on the computer and then just cut snippets. No, we were like literally having the tapes retaped from one machine to the next and stopping based on from this second to that second. It was a lot of work, but it got done. And hilariously, Jerry knew very little about it when we were doing this. Finally, a few weeks before the trial, I gave Jerry a 10-page memo and I have it. I found it. It was dated January 2, 1999. And it was a single space, 10-page memo And the first thing that made me laugh is that I obviously have been working on it nonstop through the holidays and the new year, which, you know, is the idea that an associate today would actually deign to work over a holiday is almost impossible to believe, but it's just a different generation. I worked every holiday because I just wanted to become a better lawyer. I wasn't concerned about quality of life at age 25 or 30 or even 35 uh, because I was more concerned about getting to where I wanted to be and then maybe. I could relax then. And if I wasn't there yet, what am I doing with my time? What could be more important than actually getting to where I needed to be? You know, nowadays you simply throw up a website as a young lawyer and lie about your accomplishments and you hope you can snag some clients, which is what young people do today. Back then you actually had to work because there really were no websites um, for law firms. That's not how people were finding lawyers. And in this memo, it contained every subject that Dodson talked about on these hundreds of hours of tapes, every useful subject. And I compiled all these little hits from each tape, and then I numbered them. There was like one into like the hundreds. So that when I wrote the memo, every point that I was making to Jerry had a parentheses with a number in front of it. All he had to do was then go into our big notebook, look up that number, read the blurb of the transcript that he could be using for cross, and then he could decide what he wanted to use. At that point, I left it up to him. I mean, he was the genius. I was just the kid doing the heavy lifting, but Jerry was the one that actually, you know, spun the, what is it? What is Rumpel? Was it Rumpelstiltskin that spun uh, the straw into gold? I I don't even know, but that's what Jerry did. He spun my stuff into gold and and made it look great on the cross because he was like the most talented lawyer there was back then. I was just a kid. And there was no thinking involved for Jerry once he looked at the memo. It was just so laid out so perfectly. I looked at it now and I'm thinking, my God, what what a gift to give to a defense lawyer. And here's some of the subjects and the actual notes that I gave Jerry back then. This was 23 and a half years ago. This is what I gave him. Subject, unusual relationship with prosecutors. 
reveal, and this is, I put a tape number, reveals that he asked about forfeiture and the issue is discussed by the AUSAs, meaning that he was actually talking about the reward he claimed with the prosecutors. Next subject. Them two AUSAs split up the money and he also learns about the number of witnesses against Singh. So now he's saying on tape that the prosecutors are going to steal, they're going to get this reward money and split it. He actually said that. I mean, which is impossible. It's not true, obviously. Then the next subject discusses the AUSA splitting the money. And then I wrote, why would they even discuss this stuff with him? Next subject. Claims that he thinks Singh's already pled guilty, which was not true because we went to trial. Next subject. Claims that Singh put in the hole, put in the shoe. I discussed that last week. That's where the bad inmates go, and it's you're completely isolated. Claims that Singh was put in the hole because government trying to, quote, break his ass. That's bad for the government because when you ask the uh, Marvin Dotson at the trial, do you think the government was trying to break him instead of just trying him fairly? Do you think they were trying to break him and get him to plead guilty or to cooperate? That was bad. Next subject, lied to his wife slash women. Subject, he has two kids with Lisa. She was 13 when they started having kids. Next subject, regarding his release from prison and hoped relocation. Is she go? She go. If not, I'll find the new one, meaning a new wife. Next one, lied to his wife about Holly, told her that she's his cousin. Next one, mentions that his wife ain't going anywhere because they've been married for 18 years. And the very next breath asks if this friend, Mike, who he's on the phone with, has any new women for him. Then next subject, he de-virginized Kimmy. Next subject, tells Chris Reese that when he's with other women, he never mentions his family. You're fucking me, not my family. Then, next subject, mentions he brought his kids to his girlfriend's houses. His kids. The kids that he had with his wife. Uh, brings his kids to his girlfriend's house, and they say, my daddy got so many women. Now, this was important because it shows that he's willing to lie to anybody. And that's, that was fair game uh, at the trial during his cross. Next subject, the reward application. Quote, I am the star. I birthed this case in which he speaks on a phone in a counselor's office and speaks freely because he believes the conversation is not monitored, and it wasn't. When he would call from the regular inmate phones, everything was taped. So we would subpoena those tapes, and we'd get nothing on them. Why? Because he was doing all the conversations, the bad conversations, in his counselor's office where he wasn't being taped, and the government allowed this. Another perk to ensure that any of the bad stuff was never created, uh, recorded by the prison. Except we were recording it with Chris Reese. Ha ha. He talked about one of the prosecutor's promotions. He talks again about the prosecutor splitting the money. Them two split the money. Talks about that a lot, which was just so weird. Like, did he actually believe that? I mean, did it actually happen? It seemed impossible. The prosecutors weren't insane. And then I wrote in the memo, Jerry, take your pick, because there were so many choices. The next subject, and excuse me, the next tape, received pointers from MCC officials about his reward application. MD Marvin Dodson did some legal research. Dodson states that by asking for a specific amount of money, he is being limited. Just put percentages in, I wrote, the $25 million he wanted to ask for is not enough. And then he said, the first and third pages of this power of attorney that he was creating for people to get the money for him are beautiful. The second page is limiting. Dodson asks Chris, 
tells Chris that he can get his own yacht when this is over. Marvin Dotson says application was his idea. He's going to have early retirement if Singh flips and more money can be made based on the people that Singh flips against. Spoiler alert, Singh didn't flip on anybody. Then he mentions taking a trip to Paris on a private plane with all of his money. Next subject, perks in prison. Talks about sneaking Chris up into the prison. There's no one in the counselor's office listening to his calls. He knows it's improper. He also mentions he doesn't want MCC officials learning about his business. He talks about sneaking women up uh, during her visit uh, so he can have sex with them. He talks about sneaking in uh, certain materials with some of his women. Then he finds out where Singh is located in the MCC which is weird because, you know, that's his cooperator, the guy he's cooperating against, and why would he even be told that? And then he mentions that he got into a fight in the prison, and it, I wrote a little asterisk, AUSA Campbell told JL, that's me, that Marvin has no prison disciplinary record. Well, I guess they didn't record that fight on purpose. Then the next subject, Eminem, M. He calls himself Eminem, meaning Money Marvin. That's funny. Uh, next subject, legal knowledge slash people unfairly accused. It's always, this is what he said, quote, it always happens to the ones that don't do it. Talks about Mike, one of the guys he's talking to. His brother is locked up and he didn't even do it. Then he says, quote, if you framed even Clinton, President Clinton won't help you. And this is important because we can ask him on cross. You don't think just because somebody's been indicted, they could be innocent, right? The government could charge people wrongly. That's important because we wanted the jury to think that Singh was charged wrongly. Next subject, money. Talks about the yacht that he's going to get for Chris Reese. He says he's trying to accumulate something while he's in prison and other ends, I'm not going to say it out, are not. And I wrote to Jerry, Marvin thinks that killing innocent people and getting rewarded for it is a worthy occupation. He discusses his clothes for trial. He discusses hitting up his bitches for some money. That's his word, not mine. Talks about the power of the government. Quote, the most powerful gang, stronger than Hercules. When they want you, they get you at all costs. Talks about his power in prison. He's talking about our investigator who is poking around for Singh, looking into Marvin's background. And what happened was our investigator had run into one of Marvin's women in the MCC. And I guess they recognized each other, or maybe he said something to her. And Marvin wrote, nobody better touch a string on your head, or he'd be investigating his own murder. Daddy, don't give a fuck where you at. Meaning Dotson, he was a killer, a known killer, and he would kill our investigator if he dared to harm, in his mind, one of his girlfriends. Then he predicted the length of his sentence. That's another subject. He said he was coming out hopefully soon. He said he won't have to do eight years. 15 months feels like 15 years, said that the judge is beautiful, he's going to give me them days. Sammy time is what he said. That was his quote. Sammy time referred to Sammy Gravano, the famous Gambino family turncoat who got five years for ratting against John Gotti Sr. So when Marvin is talking about Sammy time, he's saying, I'm going to get five years maybe. And then he said that uh, he's got to show love to the judge, and he tells Anne and his other women they've got to send letters for him to the judge to say what a great guy he is. He said one guy did three and a half years for seven bodies. That means he killed seven guys, he cooperated, and he only did three and a half years. And he said about this guy 
that his murders were worser than mine, quote, end quote. So Marvin thought he was going to get less than three and a half years. Now, beyond the tapes, I had Chris Reese bring in an affidavit. Uh, I had him smuggle it in through one of uh, Marvin's women for this imaginary reward that Marvin thought he was getting. And I drew it up myself. Uh, Chris had the women get Marvin to sign it and we got it out. And at trial, I had it blown up into one of those like four feet high, uh, giant poster board backed by styrofoam things. And we had it put on an easel in front of the jury. And this was real high tech stuff from 1999. And then we put it on an easel. And, and as I said, Jerry asked him if he was making an application for an award for his cooperation. He denied it. And then we pulled that monster out. And, you know, the whole courtroom just like gasped. It was so bad. That was like a really funny day. Now, the tapes crushed Dodson as a witness. They revealed him to be like a crazy liar who was only concerned about making money from his cooperation and that he would do anything for money, including, as we suggested, lie under oath. The prosecutors were humiliated and because all over the tapes was Dodson talking about them, about their malfeasance that they wanted the reward money. It was their heads were in their hands the entire cross-examination. And as I said, Dodson thought he'd get anywhere from less than three and a half years to perhaps the five years of Sammy time. Well, he ended up getting 12 years. And I mentioned to an FBI agent that I was planning on coming to his sentencing because I felt like I knew the guy so well. I wanted to see the, you know, the joys of my work completed to see how badly he would do at sentencing. But the agent advised me against it. And he said, and I remember, he said, I think it would be hazardous to your health if you show up because they know that you're the one who did this. So I didn't go. And the government was really pissed at what I had done. They didn't go after me, but they went after Chris Reese for associating with a felon when he was on supervised release. Because as soon as he got out of prison, he was on supervised release. And one of the things that you can't do is associate with a felon. And he was talking to a felon every single day. Reese's lawyer blamed it on me and said, I set him up for this and that he was working under my direction, which he was. But I, didn't, I wasn't the one who who started Chris Reese onto this, he came to my office and offered to do it. I mean, he did it. I just sort of ran with it when given the opportunity and ended up, um, in order to fight that uh, violation of, of supervised release, Chris Reese's lawyer was going to have a hearing and guess who was going to be the only witness at the hearing? Me. And I got to tell you, I was nervous. Um, I won't deny that. I was nervous. I was very nervous because who knew what a judge would think? They may think this was very bad what I did. And the judge, of course, naturally, my luck, was the toughest one in the Eastern District, Rena Raggi. She was also the smartest and she was just the best judge. Now she's on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. But I'm telling you, this was the finest trial judge, district court judge in the Eastern District. She should have become attorney general of the country, but I think she had a nanny a cash problem. And she was disqualified for it. I have a vague recollection of that, but this woman was just simply brilliant. And as I said, just had no patience for dumb lawyers, which was most of them. And she respected me because I was a hard worker, but she respected me more when we finally had the hearing because Jerry Shargell was my lawyer and she loved Jerry. Jerry had a trial with her and, you know, Jerry was brilliant. So she really adored Jerry and appreciated him for his lawyering. And by luck for me, having him as my lawyer, a lot of that went down to me. And the hearing I remember was scheduled for April 10th, 2000. And you're thinking, kind listeners, how does he remember the date? All those years ago, 22 plus years ago, it was a Monday. How do I remember? 
because on Sunday night, maybe 15 hours before the hearing was scheduled, I was hit by a car on the streets of Manhattan. It was a drug dealer getting chased by the police in an unmarked car. And I was in pretty bad shape. I needed multiple surgeries. But in my mind, when I was, when I was in the hospital lying on a neck board, because um, they weren't sure if I had broken my neck, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty psyched for one reason. I wasn't going to have to go to the hearing the next day. And when I finally was able to attend, I guess it was a few weeks later, I mean, I just looked like death. I had broken bones. I had a cast on. My arm was in a sling. I had a beard because I couldn't shave. I couldn't put on a tie because I only had one arm. I couldn't put on, like, getting contact lenses was tough to put on because I only had one hand. And, of course, naturally, the mess that I was in, my teeth were loose. I had nerve damage all over my body. I mean, I, don't, I won't even go into it. It was pretty disgusting, some of the stuff that was happening to me. I missed nine days of work because that's how things were back then. You had to produce. You couldn't take 30 days off a year and expect anyone to even look at you. You had to work. And if you weren't there, you weren't producing, and you didn't exist. Now, I was on my own then. I had just started on my own, so I had nobody paying me a salary. It was just me. I missed nine days of work, and I didn't want anybody to know how messed up I was. And when I finally hobbled onto the stand, Judge Raggi looked at me with like the kindest face. I'll never forget it. Just looking over at me, she's handing me a cup of water. She just looked at me because I was so pathetic. And I look over at Chris Reese, who's sitting at the defense table, and the guy like, starts smiling at me and waving to me. And I'm like, motherfucker, your, your lawyer is trying to like crucify me here. What are you waving to me for? And 10 seconds later, his lawyer is attacking me with questions, accusing me of facilitating this violation of supervised release uh, uh, that Chris Reese had done. And I'll never forget, Judge Raggi just cut him off at the knees. It was shocking. She yelled at him for his disrespect, his tone towards me, told him that he better watch it or she'd hold him in contempt. I mean, it was just, I remember just thinking like, you really are a lucky guy. As I'm sitting there all broken up, bones, you know, hanging out. It was horrible. But I had Judge Raggi, the toughest judge in the building, and she was on my side. And as I said, I'm sure it helped that I had Jerry as my lawyer, but she was amazing um, and, uh, to me that day. And Reese's lawyer was utterly useless. Once he got cut off like that, his questions were weak. They were limp. He was afraid. And I just slapped the shit out of him. He didn't hurt me at all. And then later, the lawyer died of a brain tumor not that long after. So to me, that was a win-win. Now, if I can, I was a very long detour. If I can get back to the Daniel Lev case, which was in the same courthouse where Marvin Dodson testified badly exactly one year before. Had the government not learned their lesson from me, I had thought? It was the same office, the same prosecutors, not the same actual ones, but the same U.S. attorney's office. Would they be more careful with me after what I had done with Marvin Dodson? They had seen the preparation of, of subpoenas. They had seen what I had done to rip this guy apart. And no, they didn't do a thing. They weren't prepared. They didn't do a thing. They just got pounded again. And they were really oblivious. I was shocked. I was so loaded for bear at this time. Why? You know, normally you'd be nervous if you're a normal person because I barely survived the Judge Raggi situation where there was the hearing. But instead, I felt bulletproof. 
I felt, man, I had survived this debacle and I felt strong. I felt angry, which is kind of what I always feel like. I felt the government had been hiding the crimes of their cooperators. I knew, I saw what they did with Marvin Dotson. I said, you know what? These people are capable of anything, this scummy office. And federal prosecutors in New York, they, you know, they fall in love with their cooperators because they want convictions. They're usually very young uh, lawyers who are overly ambitious. They don't care about the truth or justice. They just want to get a very important job after they leave this office. And that's all they care about is making names for themselves, getting that sweet job and getting a conviction by any means necessary. That's how the office was back then. I'm not sure that it's quite as bad now. In fact, I'm, I'm certain it's not. But they were looking the other way when their cooperators were out of control, and they figured that the defense lawyers would never find out about it. And that's what I learned from Marvin Dotson. So now I've got Daniel Lev a year later, and I'm like, here we go, man. Here we go. So on the Lev case, I first focused on one of the heads of the brokerage houses, uh, brokerage house who had cooperated against Daniel, and that was Gene Klotzman. And why him first? Why didn't I go after Felix, Felix Sater first? Well, how could you not go after a guy whose nickname was well-known among his friends as Low Life? To me, that seemed like pretty fertile ground to find impeachment material. And I learned that he was, uh, that he was going through an ugly divorce. And like most stock fraudsters, that meant that all he cared about was money, not his kids. And I called his wife out of the blue, got her number from one of the Russians. And I told her what my purpose was and that she and I should work together. She came to my office and she told me that Klotzman was hiding money from her, that he had a girlfriend that he was spending all of his money on, and he was not giving any to the kids, and they may lose their house. And divorce litigation is sealed, so it's not like I could access the file and get my, my sweaty mitts on it. So I had to get it through her. And she said, fine, I'll give it all to you. You help me, I'll help you. And I made it very clear to her, I will find his lies and you'll get all of it if you help me. <clears throat> and she agreed. And he was going to be deposed at some point in the near future, and surely he would lie under oath. So the quicker I could find out where all the bodies were buried, the better, and we'd catch the guy. First thing I did is I got my hands on his credit report, which was just a treasure trove of information. Anytime you want to destroy someone's credibility, you start with their credit report. It has every checking account number, every credit card account number, every car loan, every house mortgage, any loan, you name it, every civil litigation they've ever had. It's all on the credit report. It's like, you know, finding like a, a pirate's map for the buried treasure. So I started subpoenaing every bank account. I wanted first just to get the statements and there were so many accounts and I entered every check he received and every check that he wrote out onto this massive spreadsheet. And I put it all into chronological order. Didn't make a difference which account it was. I didn't do it by account. I did it all by chronology. <clears throat> and I would then subpoena, not I get all the statements, but then I would decide to get the checks. I wanted to see what the checks, they didn't have pictures necessarily of the checks on the statement. Sometimes I had to subpoena the actual checks to get them. And sometimes the checks were included when I would subpoena the statements. And I learned so much information. He was using companies in the names of his brother, in the name of his brother to funnel money to himself while denying that he had anything to do with these companies or that he had ever received any money. I'm thinking, why doesn't the government look into how this guy's living? Because they didn't want to, because they wanted his credibility to remain intact. 
And then I started seeing massive credit card bills paid off. So I began subpoenaing those credit card statements. And I must have, I think I counted, there was like 72 subpoenas that I had signed, but you have to get them signed by a federal judge. I'd walked into the federal judge's chambers and I had dozens signed at a time, all without the government knowing. The judges very rarely even asked what the subpoenas were for. Was I involved in a fishing expedition? They didn't care. They didn't ask. Now you could never get away with that. All the subpoenas have to be on notice to the government and they fight every single one of them. It's illegal now. The judges wouldn't sign them now. But back then, I pushed every case to the limit. I pushed the envelope on every single case because I wanted to win more than I cared about anything else. And this outline of mine kept on growing. Hundreds and hundreds of transactions from different accounts all together in, in time order. I added all of his credit card charges also in chronological form. I could see what he was doing every day during the years he began cooperating all the way to the present. Because when a guy is, is spending money, he's either writing checks. This is back then. He's either writing checks or he's using a credit card. There were no bank cards back then really to, you know, for transactions except for ATM withdrawals. And I could see where he was because when he used the credit card, I could see where the store was. I could see exactly what he was doing. <clears throat> and I wasn't even thinking about what any of the, this massive amount of information meant yet. I just wanted a full picture of his finances. And then from the sworn statements that he had submitted in a divorce case, I could see what was true and what wasn't when he talked about his finances. Now, keep in mind that Daniel Lev was facing years in prison. The plea offer that I had been given by the feds was like seven years in jail for him. And we rejected it, obviously. But I had to blow a hole in this case or else we'd have to go to trial. And I was so obsessed with Gene Klotzman, I got to know the guy so well, and I never even met him. So what we did in the divorce case for me, what I felt really did him in ultimately was that case because he had submitted so many affidavits in desperate attempts to hide money from his wife, and there were so many lies. He was so desperate to screw his wife over and his kids, claimed he had no money to pay child support while he was cooperating with the government. He just kept crying poverty, and it was just disgusting that he could do it to his little kids. Look, I can understand he could hate his wife, but these were little kids. But, you know, again, Klotzman wasn't known as lowlife for no good reason. He had earned that nickname, clearly. This guy was a high school dropout who went to work on Wall Street robbing people at a young age, and now he's doing all he could to avoid supporting his minor children, who, as I said earlier, were in danger of losing their home, and he didn't care. He was finally deposed in the divorce litigation in June of 2001, and I gave his wife's lawyers all the questions to ask. Open-ended questions about each of the companies he was secretly receiving money from, about his girlfriend who he was funneling money through, and he denied all of it. You'd think at one point he'd figure out where are they getting these company names from. He claimed he hadn't seen his girlfriend for months, but you know, by the time the deposition ended, I think he assumed he had hit a home run. But in reality, the dude really just dug his own grave. And combined with all the sworn statements about his finances that he had submitted in the divorce case, it was so easy to see which contained lies based on the financial info I had had. And the entire thrust of his wife's lawyer during the matrimonial deposition was trying to find out where he got money to live on. He had given her so little money. But as I said, I had found so many accounts in other people's names that were sending money to him 
and also his girlfriend, who he was funneling money through. There was money from corporate accounts, which were sending him money, and he was taking cash from investors in those corporations, in those financial corporations, and he was using it for his personal expenses. When he was confronted with one of the accounts, he repeatedly denied having any role at the company except in an advisory role. Yet he signed over checks to the company in an effort to hide money, and he had his girlfriend paid from that company for consulting. Of course, she didn't do a thing. And he had his Visa card bill paid for from a check from that account. I mean, it was completely nuts. And to show that he was tied to the company, there was a Chase account in the name of the company um, that had as the address of the company, Klotzman's old address. He claimed with he lived, he, that he lived with his mother during the deposition. But based on my own investigation, I learned that he was living in this new luxury condo in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn called the Oceana. And I learned this, how did I learn it? From his credit card bills, how? Because the ones that were dated in the middle of my investigation, in the middle of 2001, there was a change of address uh, on the account statements from his mother's house to the Oceana condo address. And I actually went there. This is how nuts I was back then. I went there and I spoke to people and they confirmed Gene Klotzman lives here. And he wasn't allowed to be involved in the financial industry once he was arrested for obvious reasons because he was a fraudster. But there was so much cash coming into his accounts from companies, financial companies that I had never heard of. So I subpoenaed all of those accounts, all the account opening documents, and saw that it was his brother was the owner you know, the person who opened up all those accounts, who were the owners of those companies. So he was funneling money, the brother, to Klotzman, and it was all going through that way. So he would sort of be kept out of it. And one of the accounts that was sending him money, when I Googled it, they had Google back then, I found a website for an investment bank in Germany, except you couldn't get into the website unless you had an account with the investment bank. So what did I do? I created one. And then I got into the website. And I went through it like with a fine tooth comb. And wouldn't you know it? I found someone who worked at the bank, one of the principals. What was his name? Gene Klotzman, but it was spelled with a Z instead of an S. The proper way is with an S. So he was involved in the financial industry overseas by using a misspelling of his name. And it was all against the restrictions placed on him when he was released on bail. And of course, it was all in violation of his cooperation agreement. The level of detail that I had like discovered was just, it was insane. In the deposition, he claimed uh, that five to six months earlier, he had returned about $5,000 worth of clothes that was bought for his girlfriend and that his credit card was credited. That's, you know, that's where he got some money to live on. But that was just a lie. I went back and in fact, there was $23,000 worth of uh, items purchased and the credits occurred just one month prior to the deposition, not like nine months that he had said. He lied by claiming he no longer used his credit cards, that he let his friend Gary Don use them, and then Gary Don gave him cash because uh, he was using the credit cards. And I called Gary Don. I found him. He denied it completely. He said that I never paid any of these bills that Klotzman's company did. <clears throat> and, you know, I was even having his friends uh, getting caught. And, of course, I recorded every conversation. But then I, I got even nuttier. I subpoenaed certain materials from his credit card statements in June of 2001 during the deposition, months after Klotzman claimed that he had broken up with his girlfriend, Inessa, and claimed he didn't even know where she was. 
he actually purchased underwear for her at a boutique named That Special Touch in Brooklyn. You can imagine. I saw that on a credit card receipt, and I then subpoenaed the boutique in Brooklyn for the actual receipt of what he purchased that ended up on the credit card statement. And if you can believe, the receipt was signed by Klotzman, and it matched his signature that I had on other things that I had subpoenaed. And on the receipt were the words Inessa along with her cell phone number, and that was his girlfriend's name and number. So just about 10 days before he was deposed and claimed he hadn't seen his girlfriend in months, he was out buying underwear for her. And I confirmed from the owners of the lingerie shop the physical description of both Klotzman and Inessa, and they matched. They were there. They bought the underwear. That's the kind of detail I was getting. That's what you do when you're a lawyer and you want to win. There's nothing will stop you. There is nothing but a bullet to the head is going to stop you. And a review of his girlfriend's account showed that he was using her to hide money that was stolen from investors. I mean, it was just nuts. He was a signatory on an account that he hoped that we would never find on his girlfriend's account. He had all these financial companies sending her checks, which he deposited into her account. And again, they were, she was getting paid for consulting, which of course she never did, all kind of stuff like that. He claimed he was subsisting on savings now and had no income, but I found so much money that he was receiving in checks from companies that he was taking from investors. And I even found that he was using money from investors, investors to pay a phone sex bill that was in his name. You could imagine how well that went over with uh, the prosecutors when I showed them. I finally contacted them and it was a risk. Because I could have waited to go to trial and just done what I did to Marvin Dodson through Jerry to Gene Klotzman. But I felt that this was so bad, so over the top, and I made a judgment call. I was going to show my hand to these two prosecutors, and if they refused to dismiss the case or give Daniel a no-jail deal, I'd have no surprises at trial, and I'd have to cross-examine Klotzman on areas that the government already knew about because I had shown them. I kept some things back just in case, but I was concerned they might just say, you know, we're not going to use Klotzman anymore. We'll just use Felix Sater or whatever other cooperators we had. But I think what the government was concerned about was they didn't know what I had on Felix Sater. I told them I had plenty. I was bluffing. And I went to go see them in October of 2001, and their jaws hit the ground. It was very funny. And very quickly, they came back to me and said, look, we can't dismiss the case, but will you take a no-jail deal? Take a felony with no jail? And I, I refused. We then settled on Daniel Lev taking a misdemeanor. And there's very few federal misdemeanors. So we had to just fabricate facts, have nothing to do with the stock fraud case. It was just a completely made-up federal misdemeanor with a guarantee no jail and not a felony. And we had a very serious judge, uh, Judge Leo Glasser, who was actually the John Gotti senior judge. And he yelled at the prosecutors when we were taking the plea. Why are you making him plead guilty to anything if you drop the stock fraud case? And he was right. Now, I wasn't told what happened to Klotzman as he was a cooperator and that the case file was sealed. And I heard some rumors back then that he had uh, gotten a lot of time, but I moved on to other cases. I didn't really have the luxury of just, I was done. It was on to the next one. And my obsession with destroying him was over. I got what I had wanted. The RICO charges against Daniel Lev were dismissed. Recently, recently, in anticipation for this podcast, I checked the Klotzman file again. It's online. It's on, on a, a website called Pacer. And decades later, 
I found out that his, uh, his lawyer, a fellow named Alexi Schacht, wrote a letter to the court in 2015 when there was great interest in the Klotzman case from the media. Why? Because of the Felix Sater-Donald Trump connection. And it didn't say whose name was who on the docket. It just said John Doe. So the press thought that John Doe was Felix Sater. They didn't even know who Gene Klotzman was. Now, Sater, as I said, was Klotzman's co-conspirator in the brokerage house that Daniel Lev was accused of committing fraud with. And they were on the same docket. And as I said, the news organizations were clamoring to get parts of the file unsealed. They wanted the parts containing Felix Sater, but in doing so, they unknowingly were asking also to unseal the files about Klotzman too. And that's where I found a treasure trove of material about Klotzman that I was unaware of at the time and over the years when I was just no hammering the guy. It ended up that I met with the government in October of 2001, told them about Klotzman. They immediately had Klotzman's bail revoked in November of 2001. However, none of the bail properties that he posted for bond were forfeited, even though the government could have because he violated his bail conditions. They let his family keep those properties. They shouldn't have. Klotzman was sent back to prison, as I said, but somehow the government didn't rip up his cooperation agreement. I don't know what else you could do worse. You basically torpedoed a major federal case. You lied your ass off to the government. You lied under oath. And somehow, even though the cooperation agreement says, if you lie to us, we have the option to rip this up, they didn't rip it up. They did force him to plead guilty to a separate charge of lying to the government. And in December of 2002, he was sentenced on both cases, the underlying stock fraud and lying to the government. He got 72 months total, 71 on the underlying stock fraud case and an additional month for lying to the government. And I think that he received, he also received a fine of 100,000. My guess is that the judge punished him just one month on the lying to the government because he gave such a stiff sentence on the underlying stock fraud case. Had he been an honest cooperator in a, a stock fraud case back then, he would have received no jail time for sure, even though he stole $40 million. And that's what Felix Sater got. He got no jail. So you can imagine that uh, Klotzman would have gotten the same thing. Sater never spent a day in jail. But even though Klotzman lies cost the government major convictions, as I said, in the one case he was cooperating in, they didn't rip up the agreement and they still gave him what's called a 5K1 letter, which allows the judge to go below the sentencing guidelines based on cooperation, which I just found to be disgusting and disgraceful. I mean, that's how we even got down to 72 months. Now, keep in mind that after I got my misdemeanor for Daniel Lev, every other defense lawyer on the case called me up to find out how I did it. I mean, they were all facing five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And all of a sudden, this giant federal stock fraud case resulted in sentences of like a few months to a couple of years for the other 18 defendants because I told them about what happened with Gene Klotzman and the government had no choice. Their case fell apart. Daniel Lev was sentenced a few months after Klotzman was sent back to prison. And as I said, he received probation. And all's well that ends well. And I never met Gene Klotzman. I've never spoken to him. But I was so intimately involved in his life that I knew the kind of underwear he bought for his girlfriend. And what I would tell you is that a determined lawyer can change history if he's willing to work. Daniel Lev escaped with his life intact. And Gene Klotzman went to prison for years. The complete opposite of what the mighty government intended just a couple of years earlier. And I have to add this incredible postscript to the story, which I just learned today from researching Klotzman online. He got out of prison 
And in August of 2010, this is what I read online, three men posing as gemstone buyers for a wealthy client walked into the Moscow offices in Russia of an Indian-owned diamond dealer. They talked their way into the firm's vaults to inspect the merchandise. Once the, uh, the vault was opened, one of the men stepped out to call his client. Shortly afterwards, four men draped in camouflage and wielding assault rifles stormed into the building. They claimed they were officers of Russia's Federal Security Service. They were conducting a raid on illicit gemstone trading, and they told everybody present to drop to the ground. They stole $2.8 million worth of jewelry, $670,000 worth of cash. Can you imagine this? How absolutely this was like complete bonker stuff that this could have happened. When the investigators finally got around to prosecuting two years later, one of the men who had been arrested was, you guessed it, Gene Klotzman. He was eventually sentenced by a Moscow court to 10 years in a Russian, Russian penal colony. In 2016, 2016, when Trump was in office, Russia offered 13 Americans who were in their prisons in exchange for two of their citizens imprisoned in the United States. One of the 13 they offered to send back to America? Gene Klotzman. One of the two men that Russia wanted back? Victor Bout, the global arms dealer who was recently in the headlines as the fellow that the Russians are considering uh, trading the imprisoned WNBA basketball player, that Brittany Griner. So Gene Klotzman somehow was important enough to the American government that the Russians were willing to send him back, cut his sentence short, and send them back for Victor Bout, the world-famous arms dealer. Crazy, right? I suspect if I do a little more research, I'll find out more on Gene Klotzman. Now, I'm going to have to change subjects now, and I'm going to quickly uh, go into the Joe Biden speech that he gave at Independence Hall. I'm sorry, this is like a whip, I'm whipsawing you. You're getting whiplash because that was such a, a bizarro story. And now I'm talking about the Independence Hall speech of Joe Biden, which is utterly insane. Uh, this is a guy that ran on a platform as a uniter, not a divider. And that's what he claimed Donald Trump was. And, and he was such a uniter that he vilified half the country, Biden, the other night. And he smeared every Republican in America. And I'm not a MAGA guy. I think Trump is a buffoon. I'm a social liberal. I'm for gay marriage. I'm pro-choice. I'm for some gun control although I love my guns, I was deeply offended by this, this, this pants-shitting low-life moron, Biden. And what I just described him as is way more accurate than what he said in his speech the other night. First of all, why was it even necessary? We're told by that uh, affirmative action, gay, all the boxes checked, completely incompetent press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, that Biden was not going to be giving a political speech, and he's just going to be talking about uniting the people of this country. Like, what? And then he comes out with his fist shaking like Hitler, screaming and yelling in front of this blood red brick wall with Marines flanking him, where he called half the country terrorists and fascists. It was utterly madness. And it was clear that he received, it was received so poorly that the next day he walked back all the worst accusations against Republicans. It was not a political speech, but the entire speech, I mean, he said it wasn't political, but the entire speech was about Trump and MAGA Republicans, just conveniently weeks before the all-important midterm elections. The image was so bad, the blood-red wall, Biden shaking his fist like Hitler, that CNN 
change the color of the wall to more of a magenta of a pink when showing it to viewers. Of course, they have no problem lying to their viewers and if it can help their political position. That's our leftist media. They're not about reporting the truth, the facts, the news. They're about manipulating you into their political position. They'll lie to your faces. And this is what Biden said. MAGA Republicans have made their choice. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. Together, we can choose a different path, Biden said. He insisted that MAGA Republicans love political violence. And what I would say is I was listening to this like, hello, Antifa? What kind of, of, of massive violence have Republicans caused recently? I mean, January 6th, I guess? That was nothing. How about $2 billion in damage caused by Democrats in the George Floyd riots? Democrats screaming, fuck the United States. They set fire to the federal courthouse in Portland. Does that count as political violence? As Democrats burned city after city, there was almost no pushback from Democratic mayors in these cities. That's political violence. Instead, we hear from this congresswoman, this Patty Murray from Washington State, which is so close to the federal courthouse in Portland that was set on fire by Democrats. She said after Biden's speech, quote, I was in the nation's capital on January 6th. I wasn't able to escape. I was barricaded in an office and I heard the pounding at the door and I heard those who were outside of it willing to use brute force incited by President Trump to take over our country. Really? The hillbillies caused like a million and a half dollars in damage to the Capitol, not the $2 billion to our cities by rampaging Democrats who burned city after city and refused to leave for weeks. Does that sound more like trying to take over the country? But nothing from Biden about that, nothing from Patty Murray, nothing in Biden's speech about the Democrats who burned our cities, nothing. And Biden went on, quote, democracy cannot survive when one side believes that there are only two outcomes to an election. Either they win or they were cheated. And that's where the MAGA Republicans are today. Does uh, Joe Biden know who Stacey Abrams is? She ran for the governor of Georgia years ago. She's never conceded. Today, she claims the election was stolen. Today, she's one of the leading Democrats in the country, not some minor politician. Biden said he's concerned about the rule of law. What about the millions of illegals he's allowed to cross our southern border? What about the terrorists that were caught at the border and so many we missed? At least 81 individuals on the U.S. terrorist watch list have been stopped at the border since Biden took office. 66 in what, eight months of 2022 alone, when there's normally three a year under prior administrations? How many did we miss? Hundreds? We caught 66? Did we miss thousands? Biden's concerned about soccer moms at school board meetings being domestic terrorists. What about the real terrorists? What about Antifa? Not a word about either the Muslim terrorists that are infiltrating America through the southern border or the domestic terrorists, Antifa. This is the Democratic Party today and why any sane person has abandoned it. They love radical Muslim terrorists who are crossing into America unstopped, but they hate American Republicans. Kathy Hochul, that, that horse-faced accidental governor of New York who has never been elected to her office, came out and said a couple of weeks ago that all Republicans in New York should leave the state. Just jump on a bus and head down to Florida where you belong, okay? Get out of town because you do not represent our values. You are not New Yorkers. Hey, fuck you, lady. 
I'd pay more for taxes in one year than you and your, your, your horse-faced liberal policies. And in, in one year, I paid more than you've probably done in 20 years. I'm paying for your stupid liberal policies. You're not paying for it. And you're telling me to leave my home and leave the state? You'll take in every illegal you can, but you want hardworking, taxpaying Republicans to leave New York? What do you think happens when we leave? You think the illegals are going to pay the taxes that I pay? You had a few illegals sent to New York City from Texas, a few buses, just a few. And that mushmouth mayor, Eric Adams, he lost his mind. He told us how much he loved the legals in New York. Suddenly, when he was faced with paying for it and finding out where to put these people, he didn't like it so much. Listen, you're asking for a civil war. Kathy Hochul, that horse face and that pants shitter Joe Biden, you're claiming that Republicans are terrorists? We'd love to give you that war if you want that civil war. Do you really want that? Love. Just tell us when. Stop this insane, this crazy leftist rhetoric which has allowed illegals to, to storm over our country, which has sent inflation rising to levels of we haven't seen since like the 80s, early 80s. We've got supply chain issues we've never seen in America. The policies of the left, they value Iran and their terrorism over our allies in the Middle East. The Democrats are the party of the Hamas caucus. They have terrorist supporters in Congress, and they want a civil war? Stop talking about it and just get on with it already. Look, I don't know what to say. If that's what they want, maybe that's what the country needs. I don't know. I can assure you that while I don't stand with MAGA on almost anything, I'm surely going to stand with them against the filth and destruction of America that the leftist scumbags are causing today. Period. End of story. And on that happy note, talking about a civil war, Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. You can write to me at beyondthelegallimit.com. I've gotten some great emails this week, one from a student from UCLA uh, who really enjoys the podcast. And uh, I welcome any feedback, any thoughts you have, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.